rather short. It comes at one of the lowest, most brutal moments in the life of Peter. Peter is a disciple of Jesus. We're going to talk about later some of his great successes and great moments. But uh, this is the night of the trial of Jesus. So Jesus has been in the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed. The mob had come and arrested him. Peter was the one who tried briefly to defend Jesus with a sword. He's been now taken, Jesus has now been taken to the high priest and been put on trial and will be here all night. Peter has followed along and been in the crowd as Jesus has been humiliated and, and questioned and, and rebuked by the high priest. Already in the, in the evening, twice someone has come up to, to Peter and said, aren't you the one that was one of his followers, one of his disciples? And twice already Peter has said, no, it's not me, I don't. I didn't follow Jesus. And just before what we're going to read, at the third time, a girl comes up and says, I, th I think you are one of the disciples that followed Jesus. If you're physically able, I would ask you if you would to stand as we read the Word of God. Matthew chapter 26, picking up in verse 74, says, Then he, that is Peter, then he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man. And immediately a cock crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before a cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When our children were little, and likely yours too, one of the things that they would say often to us when you were trying to help them do something, they would look up and they would say, I'll do it myself. Now, as a parent, we would go, okay, and you oftentimes knew that you'd have to go behind them and, and help them. But even then, sometimes they would push back and say, no, 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 I want to do it myself. Now, the thing about living a life that has not had any failure or great broken moments yet is you can believe the lie that you can, in fact, do it yourself. But one of the things that failure does. One of the lessons that failure brings into our life is the revealing of what was always true, that you could not do it yourself. This moment in Peter's life is, I think, the greatest failure of his entire life. It is the lowest moment for Peter. There are three significant events that have led up to this moment, and they weren't necessarily failures. In fact, they were pretty, pretty great moments, I think, at least in Peter's mind. The first comes way back in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus was asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? And there were all kinds of answers, a prophet, John the Baptist, but 
Peter, Peter alone amongst the disciples said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus blesses Peter and goes, you didn't get that out of your own mind. That is the father giving you that spiritual insight. It had to be a great moment for Peter. And then just previously in this chapter, as Jesus is gathered with his disciples in the uh, the Last Supper, and he's predicting his own death. Peter goes, I'll stick with you to the very end. I'll even die for you. And then, just after that, as the mob came to arrest Jesus, I think believing that he was doing the right thing, Peter drew his sword, outnumbered, outgunned, drew his sword and attacked one of the men who had came to arrest Jesus. Now, just hours later, he's followed Jesus. He's in the crowd. He's watched all the events that are happening. And he has this great moment of failure. Peter was the leader of the disciples in many ways. He was the leader spiritually. He led the disciples in devotion and faithfulness. He led them in his willingness to, to, to sacrifice for Jesus and the kingdom of God. And I want us to say from the very beginning, those things in his life are admirable. They are worthy of emulation. They are good things. But late in this evening, as he witnesses the trial and humiliation of Jesus, he fulfills the prediction of Jesus that, denying, that he would deny him Three times. I think the third denial was especially low in that he not only denied Jesus, but he added to it to convince those around him curses and swearing. Peter was a leader spiritually. He was a leader uh, physically amongst the disciples. He was willing to give his own life, but he needed to learn a lesson. He needed to understand the truth that the kingdom of God and the forgiveness of our sins would not come through his effort or even his spiritual maturity, that salvation would come through Jesus Christ alone. And so from these short verses, I want us to see these things, two negatives and a positive. Number one, spiritual passion is not enough. I want you to be spiritually passionate for Jesus. I want you to devote your heart and life to Jesus. But dear friends, spiritual passion is not enough to save you. Secondly, physical work is not enough. I want you to serve the Lord. I want you to serve the church. I want you to give your life physically for the sake of the kingdom. I want all of us, when it's all said and done, and when the Lord calls us home, I want it to be said of all of us that we gave every element, every effort that we had for Jesus. But dear friends, listen to me. Physical effort alone cannot and will not save you. And I want us to end this morning on the positive, on the truth that Peter came to know in this moment of great failure, and that is that Jesus alone saves. Let's begin with spiritual passion. Spiritual passion is not enough. In fact, two things here I would say. The first is zeal. Zeal or fervor is not enough. Now, if there was any disciple that was zealous for Jesus, it's Peter. 
Peter was the first to declare that Jesus was the Christ. We mentioned that in Matthew chapter 16. And I want you to know that that was a very, very big deal. I mean, it was a big deal when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In fact, responding to what Peter declared, this is what Jesus said. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And, and I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not over." power it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It was a big moment. It was a big moment. I don't know this to be true, but I suspect that after those words were spoken to Peter, he walked just a little bit taller, a little bit more confident. It's a good moment when you get the question right, isn't it? And he had gotten the question very right. There's no doubt that Peter was committed to Jesus and the truth. He understood even before the other disciples did that Jesus was the Messiah. He was not just a good teacher. He was not just a prophet. But by the revelation of God, Peter understood the truth that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who was prophesied that he was the son of the living God, God himself. And I don't want to take anything away from this. What a blessing it is for God to reveal his truth to us. What a blessing it is to know the truth of God and to declare it. What a blessing it is to be the first to proclaim this truth. I don't take anything away from Peter. Praise God he declared the truth that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God. God had shown Peter great things. And because of his zeal for the gospel, God would use Peter for great things. But do not miss this. We praise God for Peter's zealousness. But in this moment of failure, in the crowd cursing and swearing that he doesn't know Jesus, in this moment of failure, Peter comes to know that his zealousness, his spiritual commitment, his spiritual maturity was not enough to save. For all of his hopes for the kingdom and all of his hope of what would be accomplished through the work of Jesus, his spiritual fervor, his spiritual zealousness was not enough to accomplish it. And neither was his passion enough. Oh, I want you to be passionate for Jesus. And I think Peter was passionate for Jesus. Not long after Peter declared Jesus the Christ, that Jesus uh, told the disciples that he was going to Jerusalem, and he, when he got to Jerusalem, he would suffer, he would be, um, that he would be killed, and that he would rise again on the third day. Now, Peter's response to this teaching of Jesus was to rebuke Jesus. Now, can we just say as a side note, it's never a good idea to rebuke the Son of the living God. Somebody say amen. Peter did. Peter rebukes him. Listen to what it says. This is Matthew 16. And Peter took him aside. He's going to help Jesus out. Going to take him aside. Didn't want to embarrass him in front of the other disciples. It says he, he took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now, I think those words... Poorly spoken, 
foolishly spoken, but I think those words were spoken out of a passion, a, 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 a godly passion for Jesus and the kingdom. I think he loved Jesus. I think he was passionate for Jesus and the kingdom of God. And I think he was very surprised when Jesus harshly rebuked him for speaking contrary to the will of God. That's the passage where Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. I think it was Peter's desire to defend Jesus because he loved him and was passionately devoted to him. But friends, Peter could not stand the thought of Jesus suffering. He could not stand the thought of Jesus being killed. Now let's be honest. Let's be truthful here. It is good. It is good for you to be passionate for Jesus. It is good for you to be passionate for the gospel. It is good for you to be passionate for the church. It is good for you to be passionate for the saints of God and for your desire out of that passion to flow that that, that the saints, that, that the church do well and be well and be provided for and protected. But now late in the night, having already denied Jesus three times, as he's watched Jesus' trial progress and his humiliation and the shame that the, the chief priest had brought upon him, he would come to know that his passion for Jesus, as great as it is, I think maybe greater than all the other disciples, for all of his passion and his love and his devotion for Jesus, his passion would not be enough to sustain him, even in this moment, to speak for Jesus. And his passion would not be enough to accomplish the kingdom work or to save him. You see, friends, spiritual, spiritual zealousness, spiritual passion is good, but it's not enough. It's not enough to save you. Now, the flip side of that is physical work. Now, I, depending on your personality, one of these may appeal to you more than others. But I suspect that maybe more than other, and just in the context of our cultural dynamic, this one probably appeals to us more. Physical work, trying harder, working harder. But Peter would come to know in this moment that physical work wasn't enough either. And, and, and two things again here. Peter was willing to sacrifice greatly, but great sacrifice would not be enough. Now, there are two sides of devotion to Jesus. There's the spiritual fervor, that's the zealousness, that's the passion, and then there's the physical service and the physical work. The two sides are connected in that when one has great zeal for the Lord, the evidence of that zealousness is work. If your spiritual passion for Jesus is great, I believe so will your work and service for Jesus be great. One of the areas where we serve and work for the kingdom of God is in our sacrificing. No one who loves Jesus, no one who loves Jesus with their whole heart refuses to sacrifice greatly for the Lord. Peter had demonstrated a willingness to sacrifice greatly for Jesus and the kingdom. It's a good question to ask. What are you willing to give for the kingdom? What are you willing to give up for Jesus? Peter was willing to give up his very life. 
Earlier in this chapter at the Last Supper, Peter had responded to Jesus' prediction that disciples would fall away with a very bold declaration. This is what he had said. In verse 33 of the same chapter, Peter answered Jesus and said to him, even though all may fall away because of you. I think he's thinking about those other disciples. Even if all these men can't stand the heat, even if all of these men abandon you in this great moment of need, he says, I will never fall away. Then Jesus says to Peter that he'll deny him three times. And Peter's response to Jesus' prediction that he would deny him three times is to say this. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And there's an interesting footnote to Scripture there. Matthew tells us and all the other disciples said the same thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're with Peter on this. Now listen, I believe at that moment when Peter spoke those words, I don't think he was bluffing. I think he really was willing to die for Jesus. I think he was willing to sacrifice everything for Jesus. I, I, I see that even when he draws the sword when the mob comes. I, I think he understood that was probably a, 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 an uneven fight. He was probably willing, was going to lose, and yet there he was willing to, to, to take the fight. I think Peter wasn't lying here. He was willing to sacrifice everything, including his life. But if we sacrifice everything we have, if Peter sacrificed everything he had, even his life, friends, it's still not enough for salvation. In the moment of Peter's great failure, he would painfully come to realize that all that he had was not enough to save himself or anybody else. Great sacrifice is not enough, and great effort is not enough. One of the cultural distinctions of Western Christianity is Our, our confidence in our ability and that we can, if we just give a little more effort, we can do it ourselves. We talk about that in our context of our homes and as individuals. We talk about that in the context of church. How are we going to grow the church? Is it God going to grow the church through an act of his blessing or are we just going to get out there and make it happen? Well, frankly, a lot of Christians would say, we're going to get out there and make it happen. Give more effort. Give more, more, more uh, gusto. And we can force something to do by our sheer will. For many, when they are confronted with their need for repentance and restoration, their response is to work harder and try harder and live more righteously. We've talked often when the Lord begins to convict our hearts, drawing us to himself. A lot of times our response to that is just grit our teeth and say, well, I'm going to try harder not to sin. I'm going to try harder to do the things that God wants me to do. Peter was unafraid to give all he had for Jesus. I mentioned that in the garden when the mob came to arrest Jesus, it was Peter who first drew his sword. I love that about him, don't you? Brother was bold. Brother was brave, and he was willing to swing his sword, get in the midst, in the midst of the fight, and rumble. 
because he loved Jesus. He's willing to sacrifice his life. He was willing to give his best effort for the Lord. I'm going to tell you something. If I'm in a fight, I want Peter on my side. Amen? He knew that he knew then that he and the disciples were outnumbered and out-equipped, but he drew his sword all the same because he, he was determined to be faithful to Jesus to the very end at whatever cost it was. And I want you to hear me plainly. It's good to be faithful to Jesus. It's good to stand with Jesus even against the hostile threats of this world. But in this moment... In the courtyard, amongst all those who are witnessing the trial, after already denying Jesus three times and now cursing and swearing, denying that he knew anything of Jesus, Peter comes to painfully know that his faithfulness, his effort, was not enough to sustain him even in this moment, and it certainly wasn't enough to save him. Now, there's blessing in this failure, and I want you to see it. Because if Peter had not had this failure, I believe he, he goes, he would move into what, what was what, the establishing of the church, thinking that something he brought to it was what was sustaining it spiritually, physically, and everywhere else. But this moment breaks Peter. Everything he thought he brought to the table, he realized was worthless. Every advantage, every skill, everything that he thought that he had that was somehow, somehow valuable to the kingdom, he realizes is powerless. And in that moment of failure, he comes to know the one truth that is eternally invaluable, and that is that Jesus alone saves. Two things here. Jesus alone is able to be the guilt offering for our sin. Peter's third denial of Jesus comes just after the high priest tear their robes, claiming that Jesus has blasphemed. And the reason why they tear their clothes and the reason why they accuse Jesus of blasphemy is because he had declared that he was, in fact, the Son of God. In this moment, Jesus is moving closer to the cross. And in contrast, in this moment, Peter tries to find ways to distance himself from Jesus. As Jesus becomes closer to the cross, the condemnation becomes greater by the world. Peter keeps backing away. No, I don't know him. Never heard of him. Certainly not one of his disciples. Only Jesus could go to the cross, as Isaiah had predicted, as a guilt offering. Isaiah said, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He would see his offspring. He would prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. A guilt offering in the Old Testament law had to be a perfect lamb without defect. The forgiveness of sin would require a blood offering of innocent blood to be a redemptive offering for our sin. Peter's salvation could not come through himself. 
Peter could not affect his salvation through his spiritual zeal, through his spiritual passion, through his great sacrifice, through his faithful service. No, in Peter's failure, he comes to recognize that the worthlessness of these things outside of salvation. But Peter will come to know that Jesus, who knew no sin, Jesus, who lived his life as a perfect lamb of God, was the only one who could be the guilt offering to take away the sin of Peter and to take away the sin of all who had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Only Jesus, dear friends, only Jesus can say because only Jesus can be the guilt offering for our sin. And not only can Jesus alone be our guilt offering, but Jesus alone is able to have victory over death. When Peter declared Jesus the Christ, soon after rebuking Jesus for predicting his death, I, I think what's happening there is that Peter likely was envisioning the kingdom of God coming through the ways of men. And we think about a kingdom, we think about politics, political leaders, Maybe armies that support those things, but we think about man-made kingdoms. I think when Peter promised to give his own life for Peter, for Jesus, he likely was envisioning a, a personal sacrifice for the cause of Christ that would relieve Jesus from um, death. He saw Jesus as the one who was going to lead the, the charge and the establishment of the kingdom. He was willing to give his life so that Jesus would not have to die. Friends, Jesus was doing more than establishing a new government of men. Jesus was doing more than pushing back against political parties and forces. Jesus was moving toward the cross to die for sin. And that sin and death once for all could be and would be defeated. Now, here's the truth. Peter could die, but Peter could not have victory over death. Peter could give his life for a cause, but he could not bring about victory over sin and death. Only Jesus could die for our sin, and only Jesus could rise again. And only Jesus could therefore bring victory over sin and death. And because Jesus died and rose again, we do indeed have victory once and for all over sin and death. That's why when, when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come the saying that is written, my, one of my most favorite lines in all of Scripture, oh, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us what victory through our Lord Jesus Christ that victory came not only through his death it came also through his resurrection from the grave Peter's failure in this moment would strip away from him any hope in his ability to allow him then to see clearly the hope and the resurrection found singularly, completely, only in Jesus.
Order matters. And the order of which things are in our life matters greatly. It's good to be spiritually zealous for the Lord. It's good to know your no, uh, to grow in your love for Jesus and your passion for his kingdom, I think those things ought to be true in all of your lives. It's good to serve the Lord in the church. It's good to sacrifice greatly for Jesus and to be faithful until he comes again and calls you home. Dear friends, listen, it ought to be said of you that with your last breath you're praising Jesus. It ought to be said of you with your last bit of effort that you're serving the Lord. Don't let it ever be said of a believer that somehow you went back, that you relented, that you relaxed in your service of the Lord, your sacrifice for the kingdom, and your praise of the, of the king. Spiritual fervor, physical work are good things, but you better make sure they're in the right order. These things are beautiful and, I believe, well-received by Jesus as good and acceptable offerings from the redeemed. But outside of redemption, through the blood of Jesus, they have absolutely no value. I want to show you a gift that I have received, valuable to me. You may not be able to see it. It's a little bitty screwdriver real little screwdriver. It came in a little plastic container, says dad on it. One of the most valuable tools I own. Now, I want to be honest with you, the screwdriver is not a very effective tool for anything of value. It's pretty cheaply made. It's and if you were to actually use it to do a job, it would probably break. The little case it comes in is really cheap plastic. It won't even, the top won't even stay on. <laughs> so it's not even good for holding the tools that, it, that came in it. But that tool set is more valuable to me than all the tools I have in my, in my home. It has for many years now uh, stayed in my, in my office and a constant reminder to me of its value and its worth. Now, the reason why this little cheap screwdriver and little plastic box are so precious to me is because when our oldest son was coming through elementary school, he bought that one year at school, and they had a little, little store there at school, and they, I guess we sent some money for him to, to buy a gift, and he bought that gift for me as a Father's Day gift. And he was so proud of it. He bought it and he gave it to me. And I remember even after he, he gave it to me, he would ask me several times, Dad, have you, used, have you used those screwdrivers that I gave you? And I'd come up with something to use them for. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm going to put them in my office so that any time I need a little tiny screwdriver, I'm going to have a little tiny screwdriver. And I have. That oldest son of ours is a little bit bigger now. But I still have this little cheap screwdriver because it's precious to me. Now, you understand that the value of this gift is not in the value of the screwdriver. As far as monetary value, it's worthless. Even as a tool, it's worthless. But it's more precious to me than gold because of who gave it to me and the heart behind the gift.
He wanted to give his dad something. And because of that, this cheap little piece of plastic was well received. I've, I've received in my life some very expensive gifts, and I'm telling you, I'm more proud of this little screwdriver than some very expensive things that have been given to me. I received it well. I cherished it. Thank you for this gift. I'm appreciative of it. Now, imagine with me for just a moment that a stranger comes by my office one day. And this stranger wants to find a way to impress me and to capture my attention and admiration. And in an effort to affect those things and earn my friendship and, and a relationship with me, uh, this stranger purchases for probably a dollar and a half this little cheap screwdriver set. And this little cheap screwdriver. And he brings it to me and he gives it to me and he says, man, I brought you a really nice gift. Hope you like it. And after giving me this gift, the stranger expects to receive some benefit, some enjoyment from this exchange because I'm going to be so excited about this gift. And the, the stranger is surprised to, real, to, to, to realize that just because he gave me this gift, I don't invite him to live in my home or eat at my table or enjoy the benefits of my inheritance. Now imagine that the stranger knew that my son had given me this little screwdriver, just like he had. And imagine that he understood how much I cherished it. And so he comes to me and he protests that his gift was just as good as the one that my son had given me. And yet I cherished the one my son gave me and I threw away his gift as worthless. Now here is where order matters. My son was my son first. The gift came second. You following me? He was already my son. And so when he brought me the gift, the gift was not valuable to me because he was earning anything. He was already my son. He already enjoyed living in my home and eating at my table. He already has as his inheritance and everything I have. He was my son and beloved. And as because he was my son first, the gift coming second was well received and a blessing. But it doesn't work the other way. You bring me this, it's just a cheap screwdriver and I'll throw it away as soon as you leave. Because if you put the gift first before the relationship, this has no value at all. Spiritual fervor, physical work, when given to the king by his beloved children, are well received. Are well received. And you go to the Lord in prayer, and you confess your sin. When you get right with the Lord and plead with him, if you're a child of God, God receives that and loves that. When you serve the church, when you sacrifice greatly for Jesus, for the saints, when they do that, Jesus receives that and cherishes that. 
because it's a beautiful gift because his children who have been redeemed by his blood responding in obedience and praise to the Father. Oh, it's well received. But if you're trying to earn the admiration, the respect, the relationship with Jesus by cheap trinkets, you won't ever get there. Because you can never be spiritual enough to cover up the vileness of your sin. And you can never sacrifice and give away enough, even your own life, to make up for the rebellion that you've already participated in against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In Peter's failure, he comes to realize the worthlessness of everything he has and the blessing that Jesus alone saves. And so as we move toward Easter, we think about the cross we come to the cross with nothing. With nothing. Because in Jesus alone is salvation. In Jesus alone is salvation. And if you are to be saved, if you are to be saved, you must come to that truth that Jesus alone saves. Thank you.